and then chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. These are in connection with the sermon on Lord's Day 30, the second part of it, which I think before long will become self-evident while we're, why we are doing things a little back to front today with the catechism preaching in the morning. First, 1 Corinthians 10, the verses 14 through 22, where the apostle writes, Therefore, my beloved, Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? We go ahead to chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also we took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. 
But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. That's the reading of God's word. Let's sing in response Psalm 26, stanzas 1 and 2. This morning I may proclaim to you the word of the Lord as the church has summarized it and we confess it in Lord's Day 30. Questions and answers 81 and 82. You find that on page 546 of your book of praise. Lord's Day 30, where we confess who are to come to the table of the Lord. Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their life, their faith, and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession and life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, for then the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. After the ministry of the gospel, we'll sing in response Psalm 103, stanzas 1, 3, and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes we call Sunday a feast day, the most special day of the week. It's a day when we get to feast upon the riches of God's Word, and so it's not uncommon for us to enjoy this festive day with food that we don't necessarily have on any other day of the week. For many of us, this could very well be your Sunday soup. Well, whether it's for the feast day as a whole or for any kind of feast on the feast day, we need time to prepare. Typically, that's a Saturday thing. Prepare your meal or most of it during the day and then get some good rest, hopefully, at night. The celebration of the Lord's Supper is scheduled once again for next Sunday. And for this celebration, too, much preparation is required. 
Here we think not even so much of the formal preparations, make sure the bread and wine are prepared, brought here in advance. Now the fundamental preparation for the supper of the Lord happens within. Of course, we struggle at times with what that preparation is really supposed to look like. In fact, it's not all that uncommon for the Saturday to roll around and it dawns on us, oh, Lord's Supper's tomorrow. We might feel momentarily a little sheepish about forgetting it for most of the week, but in our minds, it's a foregone conclusion that if I've professed my faith, I get to partake once again. Is it that simple and straightforward, though? Does it really do justice to the supper of the Lord to leave preparation to the last day, if at all? Is it right to assume that your membership as a communicant member means you are to attend? Providentially, We've come to the second half of Lord's Day 30, which teaches us what Scripture requires for our preparation. So as we anticipate the Lord's Supper next Sunday, it's a blessing to consider who are to come and who may not come to the table of the Lord. Following this morning's worship service, we are to vote for new office bearers. The question of who are to attend the table concerns the work of the elders. They admit people to and they bar people from the table. So we may also then give some attention this morning to the role of the elders, at least in this respect. The deacons also have a role with the view to the Lord's Supper. The form for ordination says that the congregation Pardon me, the deacons shall promote with word and deed the unity and fellowship in the Holy Spirit which the congregation enjoys at the table of the Lord. Both offices have tasks to fulfill in relation to the supper of the Lord. The table isn't for everyone, Scripture reveals a restriction. The table of the Lord is only for those who are able to prepare themselves for it. So I proclaim to you this word of the Lord, only those who discern Christ's body are to come to the table of the Lord. And to unpack that this morning, I ask your attention for two questions we'll consider. How do you discern Christ's body? Secondly, who decides that you are discerning? So first then, the question before us is, how exactly do you discern Christ's body? Now this very question is one that we need to ask in the first place of our scripture readings. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, Paul exhorts the church, let a person examine himself and so eat and drink. He's saying that self-examination goes before the celebration. And then he adds in the next verse, verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In other words, 
discerning the body goes with, happens at the celebration. Preparation involves self-examination, leading to a proper discerning of the body. And so for us then to get a handle on just what this preparation leading to discerning is all about, we need to consider our readings. And it might be helpful to have your Bible open at our readings once again. And we'll start with 1 Corinthians 10. This is a chapter where Paul presents what has been and is a theme that's been running through the book, running through the letter as a whole. Specifically, it's the theme of the unity of Christ's body and the participation in Christ himself. Paul declares his well-known words in verse 16 and 17, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The Lord's Supper is a beautiful expression of the oneness of the body of Christ and then the participation of that body in Christ himself. You turn the page, because the Apostle Paul picks up on this theme of unity in the body and participation in Christ in chapter 11, except that theme is what Paul is going to use here to rebuke the church of Corinth. Paul has to admonish the church that their celebration of the Lord's Supper was a sin against Christ's body, the church. Starts out, of course, in verse 17, in the following instructions, I don't commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. What's, what was happening? Well, when the Corinthians came together to celebrate the supper, verse 18 reveals that there were divisions among them. And with very sharp and very pointed language, Paul explains in verses 20 and 21 what those divisions looked like. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. The congregation, it was common at that time, would celebrate the so-called love feast. It was a meal set apart for sharing with each other, trying to have, a, enjoying what you have in common. Well, after that meal, the church celebrated the Lord's Supper. Well, for those love feasts in Corinth, some of the wealthier members of the congregation did their own thing. They brought along their full baskets of bread and full wineskins and enjoyed their own supper while the poor were left with empty stomachs. Some of the wealthy were even getting drunk. Paul's verdict is that their love feasts were loveless. 
The wealthy were dividing the body of Christ. Their conduct happened in a setting that included the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Paul says to them, this is outrageous. Your division of the church into factions is a most egregious sin against the church, the sacrament, and Christ himself. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be a celebration of the oneness of the body of Christ and your communion with Christ. Your celebration is nothing of the sort. Paul is very upset. Second half of verse, verse 22, what? He says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? The unity and the fellowship in the Holy Spirit, which the congregation enjoys at the table of the Lord, that unity that was to be promoted by the deacons wasn't there. And so in the verses 23 through 26, the apostle needs to remind his readers what the Lord's Supper really signifies. He appeals there to Christ's words at the institution of the Supper. He reminds the church that the Supper is Christ's, not the church's. And so it has to be celebrated according to Christ's way. He gave the sacrament with the view to helping believers remember and to cherish Christ's sacrifice and to proclaim it until he comes back. Well, to remember and to proclaim Christ's sacrifice, that requires faith. Participation in the sacrament is an exercise of faith. But Paul needs to develop his thought a bit further. And so from verse 27 forward to the end of the chapter, Paul moves his focus away from the abuse of the sacrament in Corinth and now speaks more in general about every, how every recipient of the sacrament is to receive the body and the blood of Christ. That then includes us today. Verse 27. Paul cuts right to the chase. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. This is how serious it is when you eat the bread and drink the wine. You eat the body, eat and drink the body and blood of Christ while failing to look out for your neighbor's good, while being greedy, self-centered, like in Corinth. And so to prevent this way of participating in the sacrament, Paul gives two requirements for how to receive the Lord's Supper. Verse 28, he says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine yourself beforehand. And in verse 29 he says, discern the body when you eat and drink. In other words, the solution to divisions among the church is self-examination and proper discernment. 
That's to say that not one of us may think that simply by virtue of our profession of faith, we are entitled to the Lord's Supper. It's not an automatic thing. We have to examine ourselves first. Now, Paul doesn't specify here what self-examination means. But the word he uses is one that he uses a bunch of times in his letters. It means test something to see if it's genuine or not. The closest parallel to this passage is in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 5, where Paul calls all believers to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Same word as in our, text, as in our reading. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? The point in all of this is, if participation in the sacrament is an act of faith, the believer is required to examine his faith to see whether it matches what is expected of a person who belongs to Christ. Practically speaking, what does that look like for us? It's actually not that complicated. Self-examination looks simply for the fruits that are to go hand in hand with your Christian profession. And this is then where the plain teaching of the catechism is so helpful. Question 81, who are to come to the table of the Lord? And the answer there boils down our self-examination to three aspects. First is, those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins. It says truly displeased. How displeased is truly displeased? Well, truly, of course, does not, cannot mean perf perfectly. None of us will ever be perfectly displeased with ourselves because of our sins. There are indeed sins we also commit in ignorance. No, the point is whether your displeasure exists at all, whether it's true, genuine. Do your sins and your sinfulness actually bother you as they bother and offend the Lord? Do they produce the confession, the evil I don't want to do, I do. What a wretched man I am. Our sin has to bring about sorrow before God. True faith in Christ always involves a sorrow over my sin and misery before I go to the table. Catechism offers a second aspect. And yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of the suffering and death of Christ. It's a believing trust in the great mercy of God. Christ has a place for us at his table. He obtained that place by shedding his blood, so now he wants us to celebrate with him. Believe, he says, that my suffering and death were sufficient to pay for your sins, and, as the Catechism also adds, even cover your remaining weakness. 
That's so comforting. For so much weakness remains in us. But even all of that is covered by the suffering and the death of Christ. Christ commands attendance at his table, those with faith that is real, true, and trusting. And in the third place, catechism basically confronts you with the question, what does your thankfulness look like? You can cling to the, in faith to the promises of God, but that faith also has to bear fruit for the glory of God. We must also desire more and more to strengthen our faith and amend our life. The tighter your union bond with Christ becomes, by faith, through the Spirit, the more fruit that faith has to produce. Well, you may know that these three aspects of answer 81 that we've just covered, interestingly, are drawn from the threefold division of the catechism itself. Our sin and misery, our deliverance from our sin and misery, and our thankfulness for our deliverance. Knowing these three elements are what Christ requires for those who attend. How can I, how can we say this so confidently? After all, there is no one text in Scripture that specifies your self-examination needs to consist of these three parts. Now, there is no text that explicitly says that, but there is a text that has all of this in mind, and it's 1 Corinthians 11, 29. Discern the body. So thank you for your patience so far. Before I've actually defined the word, I've used in our theme and points. But that's the text that's critical here. To discern the body is to receive Christ in the sacrament with a knowledge of Christ's body. You discern with that this festive meal is holy and it's different from any other meal. You discern that the bread and wine represent his body and blood. And then, yes, you discern that the elements represent Christ's death for you. And that discernment brings you right back to the command to examine yourself. The only way that you can possibly discern that the elements represent Christ's death for you is if you first realize that you need Christ's death. Why? Because of the magnitude of your sin and because of the remaining sin and weakness still in you and because you have in the third place no power in yourself to have a loving attitude and behavior to God and those around you. So how do you discern the body? By examining yourself and seeing your absolute need for Christ, for your past, 
your present, and your future. Then, and only then, are you in a prime position to eat and drink with full awareness, full discernment and conviction that Christ is and he has to be your life. Examination leads to discerning the body of Christ. The supper, brothers and sisters, is not for the healthy. It's for the sick. It's for those who know it of themselves and who know Jesus Christ is their great physician. Something for our elders to take special note of. In your task of supervising and shepherding the sheep in the joys and challenges of their day, you may impress upon their hearts the call to find their whole life in Christ. Communion is for those who trust with the heart and with the head. It's not for the hypocrite. It's not for those who have no sorrow over their sin but quite enjoy their sin, who don't really believe that their sins are forgiven or who don't bother to confess their sins and who have no real desire to grow in godliness. As we also confess, hypocrites and those who don't repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Paul had said in 1 Corinthians 10 that if you live in sin, yes, if you are a participant with demons, you can't celebrate the supper. Otherwise, Paul says in verse 22, you provoke the Lord to jealousy because your heart is divided. The only way you can eat is if you discern your great need for past forgiveness and for present grace in Christ. Well, what comes from all this, brothers, sisters, is that discerning the body of Christ is your personal responsibility. Yet that alone does not give you access to the table of the Lord. So we come to our second point, who decides that you are discerning? Well, at the table of the Lord, we're not dealing with only two parties, the Lord and the believer. It's quite North American to think individualistically that the supper is really only a matter between the member and his God. Now, at the table, there are three parties, the believer, the Lord, and the local church. Jesus instituted the supper as a tangible, visible sign of the covenant for the local congregation. The supper is celebrated within corporate worship. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And of course, chapter 11 is all about teaching the wrong way and the right way of celebrating the supper together. So if the Lord's Supper is not merely an individual meal, but a communal meal, an expression of the unity of the church, 
then that suggests that you're not the only one to decide whether you can attend. Beyond your personal responsibility to examine yourself in order to discern the body of the Lord, the church community has the responsibility to watch and to determine whether you truly cherish Christ and his work for you. The Lord Jesus taught that the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. That means that it's the responsibility of the membership to discourage a brother or sister who is sinning against Christ from attending. Else, God's judgment falls upon the whole congregation. That's what happened in 1 Corinthians 11. The consequence of certain people eating and drinking without discerning Christ and his self-sacrifice, verse 30, was that many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. There was unholy attendance at the table, and apparently nobody was working to prevent that. And so God disciplined some of them with infirmities, illnesses, even death. So if the wrong use of the table could result in sickness or even death, we have the responsibility to make sure that we, not only we ourselves rightly come, but also that our brother or our sister rightly comes. Love for the neighbor demands this. Still, the decision whether you are sufficiently discerning of Christ to attend the table is not left just to you and the community. There remains a third layer. The Church of Christ is led by its office bearers. Maintaining the holiness of the Lord's table requires the supervisory work of the elders. The Lord has given them special responsibility to ensure that no one comes to the table without truly discerning their need for Christ. You might say that the buck stops with the elders. The decision, the decision for whether you and I are discerning ultimately lies with them. Whether it will be your 50th celebration or your very first. They are the final authority on who attends and who doesn't. The elders guard the table. And this is what we confess in answer, question and answer 81. 82, I believe, rather. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession and life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? Admittance is the work of the elders. The final judgment is theirs. If they were to shirk in their responsibility, then indeed, as we confess, the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. We call this the fencing of the table. And this comes from the Old Testament concept of keeping holy the things, the holy things of worship. 
Ark of the Covenant, priesthood, sacrifices, so on. Those who take the sacrament seriously understand that the very same God who required absolute holiness with regard to his Old Testament institutions is the very God who has ordained the holy sacraments of the New Testament. God's warnings about partaking unworthily are one and the same with those warnings about misusing the holy things of old. Please note that the Lord's Supper has two edges to it. For believers, it is a great spiritual feast. For those who don't discern their need for Christ, it is judgment unto death. This is one of the reasons why elders don't admit children to the table. Infants, we confessed, have to be baptized as they enter into the covenant community, but the supper is not for initiation. It's for renewal. It's for those who discern. Are there exceptions? Yes. There are adults with limited capacities who are to come if they've given evidence of faith. But that's the exception. You see, then, in light of the two-edged nature of the table, fencing at bottom is an act of love because it spares the church from judgment. Still, this practice has been criticized as very insensitive. We live in an age of inclusiveness, of breaking down barriers and giving everybody a seat. That means that churches in the evangelical world open the table to all and everyone. There is no supervision of the table. And it's just then like any other meal. At the Lord's Supper, however, the Lord has built barriers. And he denies some people a seat. His table must be guarded. It's not very difficult for us to imagine that on a Sunday morning you might find an unrepentant sinner in the pew who because of a distorted conscience believes he's entitled to participate. No one is entitled to participate. For each and every celebration in the local church, we first have to spend the time examining ourselves. It's an expression of love to that individual to bar him from attending, to prevent him from sinning against the body and blood of the Christ. Well, then this multi-layered responsibility within the church also helps us assess the matter of guests at the table. It's also a sensitive matter. It becomes obvious, I think, that a personal testimony alone can't really suffice for that only covers one of the three layers. Even a supporting testimony from the individual's friend from his congregation can't suffice, for that barely touches upon the communal responsibility. This is one of the reasons why our churches require a guest to take along testimony, an attestation. 
That attestation is a testimony from the elders of that individual's church testifying to a person's soundness in doctrine and conduct. And it thereby covers the official responsibility as well as the communal and personal responsibility. If our consistory here would permit anything else, it would become by that fact less restrictive toward guests than towards its own members for whom the local celebration is intended. I imagine you could respond to all this and say that even with this model, mistakes are gonna happen. After all, our office bearers are not able to search the heart. That ability belongs only to the Lord. Nevertheless, brothers, the Lord has taught you that you can, you can judge the quality of a tree by its fruit. Brokenness over sin, brokenness of heart, ultimately can't be hidden. Fleeing to Christ for salvation cannot be hidden either. And a genuine struggle to fight against sin cannot be masked. You as elders have the task of remaining in contact with the members. Constant touch. Through the annual home visit, yes, and through regular contact in congregational life to see if they truly discern their need for Christ and his sacrifice. And you keep your ears open to reports that you receive from others who have gone the way of Matthew 18, but with no visible fruit. Well, it undoubtedly requires great wisdom to discern where the person's heart is. And it undoubtedly takes boldness to close off the table to those whose heart and their life are not in the right place, who think lightly of Christ's sacrifice, or whose doctrine and conduct are unattested to. And it undoubtedly takes humility to show that we ourselves need forgiveness. That's why, brothers and sisters, your office bearers need your prayers. Prayers for wisdom, boldness, humility. You can't expect them to work fruitfully on your behalf for the shepherding of your soul if you're not on your knees on their behalf. That's why also the process of selecting new office bearers needs to be bathed in prayer from beginning to end. And then brothers whom the Lord selects also this day, believe that your Savior will use the prayers of the saints to provide you with what you need to guard the table of the Lord who gave his body for the church. Brothers and sisters, discern who the host at the table really is. He's your glorious and your holy Savior. He's your merciful Savior who gave his life for you that you might enjoy fellowship with him. Busy yourself this week 
with self-examination so that you can discern Christ's sacrifice. Because of his faithfulness, you may come and sit down with him. May God provide you in your life fruits of faith befitting of life in Christ. Amen.